Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome again to the True Crime Couple podcast. We have some new Patreon supporters that we want to give thanks to at the beginning of this episode. So thank you so much for your donations, Angela Stiles and Melanie Link. We appreciate every penny. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. really means a lot to me. And we just want to give a continued thank you to our supporters, Justin Tinkham, Steve Meyerson, and Kathy Rodnight. If you're interested in donating to our Patreon page, you can visit us at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We are actually going to be posting an additional full-length episode on Friday, which will only be available to our Patreon subscribers. So let's get on with episode 7. Tonight, we are bringing you the case of the Velisca Axe murders. Velisca, Iowa was described as the perfect American small town. Elm trees lined the residential streets while flourishing businesses filled the town square. Villisca was founded, like most Midwestern towns are, by the railroad company. Dean Smith of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad was the man responsible for establishing the town. He said that Villisca meant pretty place or pleasant view in the Native American language of the tribes local to the plains of Iowa. However, after 1912, many tended to believe that the town was named after the Native American word Willisca, which means evil spirit. Because Willisca was founded around the arrival of the railroad and sees 200 train stops a day, both passenger and freight, the town had to appeal to its visitors to make money. The town accomplished this by being ahead of the times when it came to technology. All the streets had street lamps, and there were phones and electricity in most of the houses in town. Villisca is in Montgomery County, Iowa, in the southwestern area of the state. At the time of the incident in question, there were 2,500 people occupying the small town. Half of that live there today. Although Villisca may have appeared to be a picturesque town, there were underlying tensions within the community. There was an unspoken battle waging within the citizens over religion. The community was split between Methodists and Presbyterians. Although the two are part of Christianity, they are vastly different. Methodists have their belief based in Lutheranism and allow the death penalty for serious crimes and believe that one can atone for their sins by performing good deeds. These deeds also show strength in their faith whereas Presbyterianism is based in the belief system of Calvinism. They do not believe in the death penalty, and they believe in something called predestination, or the belief that it is predetermined whether or not you will go to heaven or hell. The reason I'm getting into detail about these two religions is because it will play a key role in the investigation of the murder as well as the people who are suspected. Another thing to know about the state of Iowa during this time is that they have a history with the idea of a lynch law. Lynch law is the punishment of a supposed criminal, especially by hanging, by agreement of a crowd without a genuine criminal trial. Lynch law was used in the early settlements of the West as a way of maintaining minimal law and order before a sheriff or court could be set up. However, this tended to continue after the establishment of a sheriff's office or courts. 
Unfortunately, the racism that plagued the rest of the country was not absent in Iowa, and most lynched men were African Americans looking to escape the extreme racism of the South. Although by 1912, the use of the lynch law is used less commonly than in the 1800s, but it still is a factor in this case. Okay, now let's direct our attention to the events of the crime. On the evening of Sunday, June 9, 1912, the Villisca Presbyterian Church was hosting Children's Day. This event was held once a year after the commencement of the year's Sunday school lessons. The children put on a play for the congregation, and a select few pupils are directed to read passages from the Bible. The reverend of the church, Reverend Ewing, invited a fellow reverend, George Lynn Jacqueline Kelly, to watch the best events his church puts on. Also in the audience is a prominent businessman in town, Josiah Moore, also known as Joe. He was watching his four children perform in the play, and his wife, Sarah, who was very involved in the church, helped direct the play and run the day's events. Joe Moore grew up on a farm close to the Villisca area with 13 brothers and sisters. He was described as a burly man standing at 6 foot and 200 pounds with a great disposition. Joe married Sarah Montgomery, the youngest of two daughters of a wealthy businessman in 1899. Both Joe and Sarah's families were originally from Illinois, but decided to move due to the prospering railroads. After their marriage, Joe went to work for the Farland brothers selling farming equipment. Joe's friendly and talkative demeanor allowed for him to be a great salesman, and the brothers quickly promoted him to manager. However, in 1902, the man who owned the business before the brothers did bought the company back from them. This man's name was Frank F. Jones, most commonly known as F.F. Jones. Jones was an influential man in the community because he owned many businesses, including the bank in town. Originally from New York, Jones was a dedicated member of the Methodist Church in town and was a former school teacher. At this time in 1912, Jones also had added congressmen to his resume by serving three terms in Ohio's House of Representatives and would go on to be a senator. By all accounts, Jones was an arrogant man and extremely strict, whether it was with his students as a former teacher or his employees as a business owner. Joe worked for F.F. Jones for nine years. In that time, he was Jones's best salesman. However, Joe saw no raises in that time and was required to work all weekends and into the early hours of the morning. During the time of his employment, Joe and Sarah are going to have four children, and Joe really needed that raise. But Jones refused Joe Moore's request, and that's when Joe quit his job. Joe decided to start his own farm equipment sales business, and because he was Jones's best salesman, he had a great relationship with the largest client the business had, John Deere. Joe proposed an idea to the growing farm equipment company. He told them he wanted to open a store that exclusively sold John Deere equipment. The retailer quickly agreed, and Joe opened a rival store across from Jones's store in the town square. Joe had made a good business decision. His business was thriving, but it didn't put Jones's business out of commission. However, there was a lot of bad blood between the two men, and their differing faiths did not help the situation. By all accounts, the men would not speak to each other, and if they were walking down the street, one would cross the road. Let's go back to Children's Day on the 9th of June in 1912. Joe and Sarah's four children, who were performing in the play, consisted of 
Herman, age 11, who was always seen right by his father's side, Catherine, age 10, the only girl of the Moore family, Boyd, age 7, and Paul, age 5. Just before the performance of the play, Catherine approached her father and asked if two of her friends, Lena and Ina Mae Stillinger, ages 12 and 8 respectively, could stay the night with them. They were performing in the play and were supposed to walk to their grandmother's house after the performance, but were scared to walk so far in the dark. Joe said that it would be all right, but he first needed to call their parents and confirm with them. Joe reached the Stillinger house by phone, but the girl's older sister Blanche answered and told him that her parents were outside. Blanche assured Joe Moore that she would tell her parents and that it would and that they would be fine with the whole situation. The children's day's activities ended around 9:30 p.m., and the Moore family, as well as the Stillinger girls, began their walk home. Unfortunately, all the street lamps were out due to a conflict with the local power company and the Villisca Town Council, so the group walked in complete darkness. It is estimated that they reached their wood-framed house at 508 East 2nd Avenue between 9.45 and 10 o'clock p.m. It was then that the family and their two house guests had milk and cookies before bed. At 5 a.m. the next morning, the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, went out to hang her laundry on the line. She noticed something strange. The Moore house was completely silent. By this time, Joe is usually saying goodbye to the family as he's leaving to go to work, and Sarah, just like she was, is usually hanging laundry from the previous day as the kids play in the yard or helped her with chores. She thought that maybe they decided to sleep in because of the previous night's festivities, but that was very unlike the Moore family. By 7 a.m., she grew very concerned. She went to the Moore house and knocked on their door. There was no answer. When she tried to open the door, she realized that they were all locked from the inside. She then decided to phone the house of Ross Moore, the brother of Joe Moore. She asked if maybe there was some medical problem with Joe's father that the family was attending to. Ross Moore assured her that his parents were fine and that he was going to call the store and see if Joe was at work. However, the store employee said that Joe had never come in. Ross Moore told Mary Peckham he was on his way over. When he arrived at his brother's house at 8 a.m., he knocked on the door and shouted into the house, thinking maybe the family was still sleeping. When there was no response, Ross used the key he had to open the front door. Mrs. Peckham followed him into the parlor, but did not enter the house. Ross Moore first checked the room off from the parlor, the room in which the Cylinder sisters were sleeping in. He found a bloody mess. Two bodies lay in the bed, blood splattered all around their heads, which were covered by children's nightclothes. Not wanting to see any more, Ross ran out of the house and took Mary Peckham with him. He told her there were bodies in there and she needed to call Marshal Hank Horton, Villisca's primary peace officer. Horton arrived at 8.30 a.m. and he was not trained in preserving a crime scene, but because Villisca had such little crime, there was no detectives in town, not even a police force. After Horton arrived, he went into the house to check out the scene as Ross and Mary Peckham waited anxiously outside. When Horton came back out, he said to the two that there was somebody murdered in every bed of the house. Now, using testimony from witnesses, Hank Horton, Dr. J. Clark Cooper, who was the first physician to enter the Moore house, 
and Dr. F.S. Williams, who examined the bodies, and Dr. Lindquist, who was the coroner in town, and he also witnessed the crime scene. The accounts of the scene and the actions of the murderer seem to go as follows. Sometime shortly after midnight, the murderer or murderers entered or were already in the Moore house the night of June 9, 2012. They found Joe Moore's axe either in the family's yard or in the house and went up the stairs to the bedroom of Joe and Sarah. Joe and Sarah were bludgeoned to death with axe wounds to their head. Blood poured from the bed to the floor and splattered all over the walls and ceiling. Also on the ceiling were nick marks from the veracity of the killer's blows each time the axe was brought back up and then down again to strike his victims. Joe Moore was so badly slain that brain matter and skull pieces were found embedded within the mattress. Sarah's shoe was found on Joe's side of the bed. It had blood inside the shoe and at the bottom. Investigators speculate two things. Either that the shoe was knocked over during the one attack on the Moore couple, or that the killer returned, found that Joe Moore was not dead, and then knocked over the blood-filled shoe while attacking him one final time. After the couple was dead, the killer covered their bodies with a bedsheet. After the attack on the 43-year-old Joe and 39-year-old Sarah, the killer then moved to the second bedroom of the house, the children's room. All four children are asleep in the beds as the killer strikes them several times in the head. Blood splatter indicates that all children were in a sleeping position when killed. Like their parents, the killer covered the children with either pieces of clothing or bed sheets. As the killer moves through the house with the family's long-handled axe, he covers all the mirrors and glass with fabric and clothing. He also shuts all the blinds in the house. At some time, he makes his way into the kitchen because an uneaten plate of food is found on the table as well as a bowl of bloody water. In his final sweep of the house, he finds the Stillinger sisters sleeping on two beds in the room just off of the parlor. The girls are hit with the axe so many times in the head that they were only identified by the Bibles laying on their bedside tables next to the bodies with their names inscribed on them. The large mirror in the room was covered by a skirt and the girls' bodies were covered by the nightclothes of a child. There are some peculiar things that are much speculated about that were found in the room of the Stillinger sisters. All victims in the house were slain in their sleeping positions, all except for 12-year-old Lena. Lena was found with defensive wounds on her arms and her body had slid down the bed. Her genitals were exposed as her nightgown had, rid had ridden up either because she slid down the bed or it was positioned that way. The 12-year-old girl was not wearing underwear. There was also a blood stain on the inside of her right knee. There is a lot of speculation that she was either posed to look this way by the killer, or perhaps she was even the intended victim of the killer all along. Some speculate that this just happened as she was trying to get away as she was woken up by the sounds of the killer, which is interesting because she's the only victim who appears to have woken up or had any type of idea that something was going on in the house right that is weird yeah because all the other victims were still in their sleeping positions right her position is a little awkward compared to everyone else in the house correct yeah three other items were found in the room of the girls 
The first was a, this is going to get a little weird, was a four pound slab of uncut bacon. Um, The same like similar slab was found in the icebox of the family. So this was something that was on the property, they're assuming, for the murders. Those that believe that the killer positioned Lena in a sexual manner make the argument that the killer used the grease from the bacon to masturbate. You know, some people do get hungry at night. Maybe they wanted some bacon. You never know. No. Okay. (laughs) The other item found in the room was a kerosene lamp. The lamp's wick was turned back and it was missing its chimney. Now, for those of you who don't know their stuff about kerosene lamps, I had to look this up because I know nothing about kerosene lamps. But... The chimney is the part, is the glass part that protects the flame from wind or putting the flame out. Okay. So the chimney of the kerosene lamp was missing, but it was found under the dresser in the room. It wasn't broken? It wasn't broken. Hmm. Another lamp in the same position was found at the top of the stairs just before Joe and Sarah's bedroom. So two kerosene lamps were found, both missing their chimneys in the house. The murder weapon was a long-handled axe, and it was found propped up against the wall in the girls' room. There was also part of a keychain that was found on the first floor of the house that must have broken off from the killer. It appeared that someone had attempted to wipe some of the blood off the axe, but they did a really bad job at it. And the killer is going to leave the house somehow with all the doors locked from the inside. There's a lot of speculation about whether the killer was waiting for the family in their attic or in the family barn. So evidence that points towards the killer waiting in the barn is that there's a man-sized impression on the bales of hay within the barn, and right above the impression is a knot in the wood, which leaves a hole. So the killer could have been sitting there looking at the family house waiting for the lights to go out. So that it's just a weird positioning of the impression in the bales of hay. Almost like he was waiting there. Like like he was laying on the hay looking through this people. Correct. Okay. And, I mean, we don't know because the family could possibly have... I mean, the kids could have been sitting on the hay or Joe Moore could have been. Right. But it seems like the positioning of the impression is right by the hole in the barn. Hmm. So it did look like someone was observing the house, possibly. Evidence that points to the killer waiting in the attic is the fact that two cigarettes were found in the attic that were not the brand that Joe Moore smoked. So that's interesting, too, that the killer could have been waiting in the attic. Where did these two cigarettes come from? Because it's rare that someone's going to be waiting in an attic. That's strange. I mean, there's a possibility that maybe the house was being vandalized and the family came home in the middle of it, and that's where the person who's vandalizing the house was waiting. In the attic? In the attic. But the thing is, though, if he was up there smoking cigarettes, everyone, you would smell the smoke. That's very inconspicuous, I know. Yeah, but then the family would have smelled the smoke when they were there. It could have been done after the fact. That's but true. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> because that actually happened in a girl I went to high school with. That happened. Her house was being vandalized. And her mother came home in the middle of it. And the guy ran into the teenage girl's closet. And then he came out in the middle of the night and she kept calling the house phone over and over again until her mom came in and then the guy ran out of the house. I can't believe that. That's, That's crazy, t- actually. It's a terrifying if story. If that happens tonight, I'll flip out. Like, 
It's really that's why I always make you check the closets. You know what? I you know I can't talk shit about you anymore. I know. <laughs> um, so it also is important to note that after the examination of the bodies, none of the victims were sexually molested in any way. It also was concerned uh, it was also confirmed that each victim received anywhere from twenty to thirty blows to the head with an axe. That's so a lot. It's that's a lot. overkill. And it's someone who's very angry. Yeah. That's bloodlust. A lot of aggression yeah, there. Yes, that's crazy. And it takes a lot to do. A lot of physical exertion oh, yeah, to do that. a lot of physical exertion to do that. The people of the town quickly heard about what had happened. Mary Peckham and Ross Moore called all the people that they thought should know about the murders taking place. This is back in 1912. And during that time, the phone operators were the ones who not only connected the calls, but were able to listen into conversations. When the phone operators heard what had happened, they spread the news as well. The two people that were not called were John and Sarah Stillinger. The girls' bodies hadn't been identified yet, and they didn't know who they were. They couldn't even look at their faces, so someone who even knew the girls wouldn't be able to tell that it was them. And by 9 a.m., Sarah tried to reach the house of the Moors because she wanted to know why her daughters had not returned home yet. She was told by the phone operator that she could not complete the call because the Moors were dead and that everyone in the house had been slain the night before. Sarah collapsed to the floor. Could you imagine being told by the phone operator that your two daughters were dead? Right. I mean, that's That's crazy. so sad. Upon hearing the news of the murders, the citizens of Villisca went to the Moore's house to view the grisly scene. The marshals of the town tried their best to keep the crowds out, but they were not able to. Hundreds of people were walking through the crime scene, contaminating or destroying evidence. It sounds a lot like Hinter Kafak. Just it does. the destroying just of evidence just everywhere. In, just eating food off the table. Right. Just doing what they want. It's crazy. Uh, someone even took a piece of Joe Moore's skull as like a souvenir is that disgusting what would you even do with that i don't know like i wonder who has it. it's probably passed down in someone's will i just came home and said hey look i have a piece of skull i want to hang it up above the fireplace could you imagine that'd be weird i I wish we had a fireplace though that'd be nice i do which one the town pharmacist was actually paid by a local newspaper to sneak pictures of the crime scene However, when he was found out by Ross Moore, Moore destroyed his camera. And it's kind of a shame, though, at the same time, only because there's no known pictures of the crime scene. So there's no pictures? There's no pictures of this. At all? No. I mean, I know it's 1912, but no pictures at all? No. Wow. (laughs) Eventually, the National Guard was called in to maintain order at the scene and in the town. Town officials were nervous about the mob of people, first of all, destroying the crime scene, but they were also nervous that if they were ever to take someone into custody, that the mob would call for the lynch law and that person would be lynched on the scene whether or not they know they're guilty. So that's why the National Guard was called in. In fear that they would be blamed for the crime, a group of homeless black men living in a homeless encampment just outside of town, they're going to leave on the next train. Because nobody in a town, whenever you hear like small town murder, no one wants to believe that it's someone from their town. They don't want to believe that a neighbor that they knew and saw every day could be capable of something like this. So the first person you want to blame is a transient. 
So that's why the homeless community got very nervous about this. And a lot of a lot of them left the encampment that was just outside of town because they didn't want to be blamed. And I the black don't blame them. No. And the black men knew especially, you know, we're the number one suspects here. Right. So everyone got out of Dodge. Although the art of fingerprinting was new, a fingerprinting expert was brought in from the federal level, but nothing conclusive was found. He was able to deduct, however, that the killer was left-handed from the way that he swung the axe. This was most notably seen in the marks that were left by the upswing of the axe on the ceiling. F.F. Jones, who was running for election in the Senate at the time, interjected in the investigation. He said that he would pay for the famous bloodhounds from an investigator in Nebraska to come in and follow the scent of the killer. The cost of this would be the equivalent of $4,000 today. Some speculate he wanted to look like he was in control during a testing time and was protecting the town and community, something that would reflect well on his run for Senate. Some also say that he was interjecting in the case because he was involved. But when the bloodhounds arrived, they all led the hundreds of people who were there to follow them to the river in town, twice. But that's where the scent was lost. So really nothing came too much of the bloodhounds except for possibly that the killer fleed. As the members of the town feared a murderer living among them, they began to reinforce their locks, carry weapons openly, and huddle together as they slept. The town of Villisca also became a hub for amateur private investigators trying to make a name for themselves. I mean, no matter what, what this killer did, he went into the house with eight people in it and was able to kill them all. So I don't think sleeping together would really save you all that much. Those four kids were sleeping together. Now, had these murders occurred today, it's almost certain that enough evidence was left at the crime scene to solve the crime. It's easy to say that it's the fault of investigators through their gross mismanagement of evidence that the killer was not caught, but we must remember the time period and that the town didn't even have an official police force. Although many mistakes were made at the scene, this did not mean there was a lack of suspects in the case, to say the least. Let's get into the people that many believe could have committed this crime. What I'm going to do is going to just go in order of when the men were detained, not the order that we think they did it or didn't do it. The first is Joe Ricks, who was detained in Monmouth, Illinois on June 15, 1912. The 16-year-old niece of Joe and Sarah Moore, Faye Van Gilder, said that on the Saturday before the murders, she was accosted by a man who inquired where the home of the Moors was located. She said that she had told her aunt about this event, and Sarah Moore responded by saying that a man meeting that description had been hanging around the house lately, which is kind of weird. Why would he be asking where the house is if he's been hanging around the house? Joe Ricks became an immediate suspect because not only did he match the description given by Faye Van Gilder, but he got off the train that departed from Villisca to Monmouth, Illinois, wearing shoes covered in blood. However, when Van Gilder was brought in to identify the man, she said it wasn't him. Ricks also then claimed that he received the shoes in a trade with a hobo. The man was then let go because they had no reason to hold him. However, the information we learned from the niece is pretty interesting. So if someone had run into her on Saturday and was asking for where the Moore family was located. 
Now, could that have something to do with the fact that the father dealt with farming equipment? It could. Maybe he was just looking for where the rental business was. Maybe there was a tool, a specific tool. Yeah, maybe he was looking for Joe Moore to talk to him about his salesmanship. It's possible. Um, It also shows us that it's very evident with these 200 train stops a day. There's a lot of transients coming in and out of this town. A lot of strangers coming in that people just have no idea who they are. I just want to take a really quick time out and just say, if that is the case with these shoes, who in their right mind would trade anything for a pair of bloody shoes? Maybe his shoes were worse. Worse than bloody shoes? Maybe he had holes in his shoes. Maybe I mean, if they, if they were like Jordans or something, I, mean, I can understand. Not in 1912. But not in 1912. Kids do weird shoe swapping. They, yeah, they do. They, it's they a weird, creepy thing. It's kind of weird. Yeah. I don't know. My mom always said, never put on anybody's shoes. But then again, my mom is very uh, superstitious. Well, I wouldn't want to put on other people's shoes. I mean, I wouldn't either, but I'm just saying. Yeah. (laughs) The next suspect is Andy Sawyer, who was arrested on June 18, 1912. According to a bridge foreman and pile driver for Burlington Railroad, a man, Andy Sawyer, approached his crew at 6 a.m., the morning the murders were discovered. So this would be June 10th, the morning of June 10th. He was clean-shaven and wore a brown suit that was covered in mud, and he was wet up to his knees. Now, people think that's curious because if the killer escaped by the river, that would be why he was wet. and that's why the dogs lost the trail as well. He asked for employment, and because the foreman needed another man, he was hired on the spot. That evening, the men obtained a newspaper which featured the story about the axe murders. The foreman states that Sawyer was obsessed with the crime and asked day after day if the men of the crew think they know who did it, had any feelings about the case, or if the killer was apprehended. Sawyer also slept with an axe. That's a little weird. Hmm. Sawyer then told the foreman that he had been in Villisca the Sunday night of the murders and that he was scared the police might think he was a suspect, so that's why he left town to join the crew. The foreman's son also testified that Sawyer once told him, while they were in the town of Villisca, that he knew the way that the killer had escaped from the house, and he showed him the path the killer probably took, he said. And it led right up to the train tracks, which would be the way someone could get out of Villisca quickly is by the train. However, Sawyer could not have been the killer because he was detained by law enforcement for vagrancy at 11 p.m. in Osceola, Iowa, which is several miles away from Villisca, Iowa, and he was put on a train to head towards Illinois. So he couldn't have committed the murders. Right. I mean, even though this would be the most ideal suspect because you have the guy actually slept with an axe, I mean, testimony claiming that he was wet all the way up to his knees. I can see why people would automatically assume it was this dude, but... It would be an easy shut and oh, yeah. open and shut case. But this is going to show law enforcement that they may need to weed their way through some questionable and unstable characters. At this point, two years had gone by and no new leads in the investigation had happened. However, the family members of the victims would not let this be a forgotten crime. John Montgomery, Sarah's father... Ross Montgomery, Joe's brother, and John Stillinger, the father of the Stillinger sisters, helped raise money for the state of Iowa to pay for private investigators to look into the crime. They hired the Burns Detective Agency, which was started by William J. Burns, 
who was called by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle the American Sherlock Holmes. But it's not Burns that's going to look into this crime. He is going to send one of his investigators, James Wilkerson, to Villisca, Iowa to try and solve this mystery. Unbeknownst to the town of Villisca, Wilkerson is going to pose as a man who's trying to sell people in town pieces of land in Texas. While he worked undercover, he was finding out from members of the town who they thought committed the murders. In 1916, he reached out to Ross Moore and told him who he really was. Now, this is after two years of being in the town. Uh, he told him he was a detective from the Burns Agency and that he knew who killed his brother, his brother's family, and the Stillinger girls. As Wilkerson was building his case against a quote-unquote prominent member of town, the rumor mill began and everyone knew who he was referring to. F.F. Jones. Wow. Yeah. The guy who Joe kind of had that bad business deal with when he quit and then started a rival company. Wilkerson released his findings in a newspaper article in 1916, which was really bad timing for Jones, who was running for re-election for his Senate seat. In the article, it states that Jones hired a hitman, William Blackie Mansfield, in 1911 to kill Joe Moore. He states that Mansfield said he would do it, but needed time because the police would suspect a transient in town, and he would return to commit the murders. Now, we know that Moore and Jones had bad blood because of their business transactions, but there is something else that would cause Jones to be angry with Moore. F.F. Jones had a son, Albert, who was by all accounts not like his father at all. Albert was called meek and compared to his father, not a smart man. Albert is going to marry a young, beautiful woman, Donna Bentley. Bentley was having an affair. Well, many affairs. Remember how we told you that the operators could listen in on phone calls? Well, phone operators are going to testify that three men in particular would call the house of Donna and her husband quite often while her husband was at work. On one day, the operators noticed that the line was open at the house of Donna and Albert, but they hadn't been contacted to connect them to anyone, so the operators decided to listen in. What a fun job that probably is. You would love that job. I would love it. Uh, what they heard was an altercation. Apparently, Albert Jones walked in while another man was at home with his wife. The two men were fighting and knocked over the phone in the process. Jones shot the man in the thumb and the man ran out of his house. However, the man that was shot wasn't the man who called the house most often. The man who called the house most often was Joe Moore. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Can I just say one thing? How do you go, how do you try to shoot somebody? I mean, first of all, I never want to be in a situation where I have to shoot someone. But if, if that's going to happen, how the hell do, how do, you, how do you get into that mode where you shot someone's thumb? Like, out of all places that you could aim your gun and shoot. You shoot his thumb? Well, what seemed to have happened, because the operators had to, got to listen to, to the whole thing, that Jones had the gun pointed at the man and said, if you ever come here again, I'll kill you. 
and that accidentally the gun had went off and it got the guy in the thumb. That that's really the situation that happened. But he didn't intentionally shoot the guy. So he was lucky he didn't get him somewhere better because then he, it would have be been good. murder. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I want to mention when we're talking about William Mansfield is that Blackie is not his nickname. The nickname was created by the man who wrote the newspaper article with Wilkerson, Jack Boyle, who was also a fictional writer. Boyle had just written a book about a fictional jewel thief named Blackie Boston, and this is going to have many damaging effects, and that's why I'm bringing it up, because this man decided to make up a nickname for Mansfield to kind of make the whole thing sound more interesting, more appealing. It actually led the people in the town of Villisca to believe that Mansfield was black. And the people of the town then turned on the black families of the town and forced them to move out. And unfortunately, like many towns in the 1900s, after this whole Blackie Mansfield thing came out, Villisca became a sundown town. And if you don't know what a sundown town is, it's um, a town where if any black man, woman, or child is caught out after dark, violence is going to ensue. So that's what that Boyle had created just because of a nickname. So Unreal. that's an interesting part of the case that's never added. Blackie was really never Mansfield's nickname whatsoever. It's just people making shit up and it makes things worse. Right. The newspaper article only had circumstantial evidence that connected Mansfield to the crime. However, the most damaging of the evidence involved is the fact that in 1914, two years after the crime, Mansfield's wife, her parents, and their infant son were slaughtered in their house. And the murder weapon was... An axe. An axe. Wow. And where, and where was this? Was this in the, Iowa? The murder didn't happen in Iowa. The murder actually happened in Kansas. That's where he lived. But he did do some work. Like, when you work for a railroad, you kind of travel around a little bit. And that's what he did. Wilkerson convinced the people of the town and local law enforcement that Jones and Mansfield were guilty. And this led to the arrest of Mansfield at a meatpacking plant in Kansas. And it has been said that when he was arrested, he was actually dangled over a bridge and asked about the murders in Villisca, but he never confessed to them. So even when his life was threatened, he didn't confess to the murders. Mansfield faced a grand jury with circumstantial evidence that Wilkerson collected in July of 1916. This resulted in a no-true bill, which means there was not enough evidence against him to go to trial. However, when Wilkerson learned that one of the jurors worked at the bank that F.F. Jones owned, he claimed that there was jury tampering, and he picked up where he left off, except this time he was holding public hearings to discuss the evidence that he had against Jones. At this point, with the election coming up, F.F. Jones had enough, and he's deciding to sue Wilkerson for slander. Wilkerson hires a prominent attorney and turns the whole trial around. His theory is that if he can prove that what he's claiming about Jones is true, then it's not slander. Wilkerson and his lawyer get witnesses to confess they saw Mansfield and Jones together, and they say that they saw Mansfield go into the Moore house on the night of the murders. That's pretty damning evidence against Jones and Mansfield, if that's true. The hundreds of people that attended this trial were shocked to hear the testimony of these witnesses. 
This all proved that Jones was guilty. Not only did the testimony help Wilkerson not get sued by Jones, but it opened up a second grand jury hearing against Mansfield. However, when it came time to testify about what they saw, those witnesses who were so adamant before were evasive on the stand, and they said they couldn't remember what they saw. Now, it's pretty obvious that they were frightened to perjure themselves before a grand jury, and what they had said in the previous trial wasn't true. Evidence was also received was also received that Mansfield had signed pay stubs and check in and out cards from an employment at Greer Provisioning Company in Illinois during the time of the murders. So Mansfield was in Illinois during June 9th and 10th. So he was not indicted for the second time. But it seems like Wilkerson is on a mission to have this go through as being true. The town of Villisca was now split in two. You either believed Jones killed the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters, or you didn't. The lines were typically drawn by your denomination. The Presbyterians believed that Jones was responsible, while the Methodists did not think that their fellow member and state senator, F.F. Jones, could do something like that. Those who believe that Mansfield is guilty do not see him as a man with an alibi, but a cocaine fiend serial killer <laughs> yeah a well he crazed serial killer well he was addicted to cocaine okay and they think that he is responsible for other axe murders that took place in the area at the time one of those being the murder of his wife in-laws and infant son the other murders that they're talking about was um an axe murder that was committed four days before the Velisca murders in paola kansas as well as the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. Now, with this whole theory, maybe Wilkerson is kind of onto something because he's suggesting that a serial killer is responsible for the murders of the Moore family. But maybe it's not that serial killer for hire that he thinks it is. Maybe it's just a serial killer because there was a serial killer operating at the time who committed axe murders. I will say, if it was just Velisca and the Moore family, you know, then I would be like, okay, well, that makes sense if it's, you know, a murder for hire. But the fact that you have, was it the three incidents in Kansas? Well, there's more. Well, okay, there's more, but, right, okay, so there's more than just the ones we mentioned. So that does go into the whole, okay, this could just be a mass murderer you know, he just wants That's to That's traveling yeah. the railroads. Right. Well, law enforcement had another suspect, Henry Lee Moore, who was of no relation to the Moore family, but makes things complicated. More complicated? Get it? <laughs> so, <laughs> M.W. McClowry, who was the federal agent assigned to the Velisca case, and he was that finger expert, fingerprinting expert that we talked about before. He believed that Henry Lee Moore was responsible for not only the Velisca murders, but 22 others as well. Now, he was convicted for these 22 other murders. And what McClowry is saying is that in the middle of all those murders, he also committed the Velisca axe murders. So let's discuss Henry Moore. In 1900, when he was 26, he lived with a family as their farm hand. Um, it is kind of rumored that he fathered a son with the farmer's daughter, but he was arrested on forgery charges and spent 11 years in Kansas State Reformatory. 
He was released on he was released in April 1911. The first in a series of axe murders in the area happened in September of 1911. Henry Lee Moore was living in the area that the murders took place in September. He then went to get a job with the railroad in 1912, which is going to allow him to move from place to place and butcher four families, one of them being from Paola, Kansas, which, if you remember, Wilkerson said he believed that Mansfield was responsible for that. Well, Moore is actually going to be convicted of that crime and probably many other crimes that we don't know about. Now, all of these crime scenes all those four crime scenes that I told you about above looked eerily similar to the scenes in Villisca. So that's why they think, well, that's why McClowry thinks that he could possibly be responsible for what happened in Villisca because it looked so similar to what happened in these four other families being slain and killed by an axe. The families were all sleeping in bed. All of the wounds were directed to the head. And he does seem like the man who could be physically responsible for this crime. McClowry heard about this man and his crimes from his father, who was the warden of Leavenworth, Kansas Federal Penitentiary. His claims, however, were never looked into, so nobody wanted to listen to McClowry, even though this does seem like the most viable thing right now. Henry Lee Moore was paroled by the governor of Missouri on December 2, 1949, after serving about 36 years of his life sentence. He was finally fully released in 1956 at the age of 82. So he didn't even have to serve his full life sentence for killing those four families. 22 people with an axe. That's insane. Talk about the justice system, huh? It is crazy. The final suspect is a man who was mentioned in the beginning of this case. Reverend George Kelly. Kelly was a traveling preacher in the Presbyterian faith who finally settled down in 1912 in Macedonia, Iowa. It's just the weirdest name for a town in Iowa. I think it's kind of cool, actually. Mas- like, I live in Macedonia. It's nope. kind of cool. Iowa. <laughs> on the day of the Children's Day festivities, on June 9th, 1912, Kelly was a guest of the Velisca Reverend Ewing. So, Reverend Ewing is the one who presides over the Presbyterian Church of Velisca. So... He wanted to bring Kelly over to show him the Children's Day and show him what it was all about because Kelly was thinking about starting this at his congregation. Kelly was described as a strange man. He was known as the small preacher, standing only 5'2 and weighing about 119 pounds. He was obsessed with the Velisca murders. And between the crime and 1917, when he was arrested, he wrote dozens of letters to the family members of the victims, the attorney general, and the Burns Detective Agency. From his letters, he seems to know a lot about the case, which is strange because he left on the train before the murders were discovered and never went to the crime scene. He was suspected in the Velisca case after he was detained by law enforcement on separate charges. Now, here's a description of those separate charges. Reverend Kelly had posted an advertisement for a stenographer. um, Just, you know, like a typist to help him dictate things. A high school girl applied for the position. However, she was horrified to find out that he wanted her to perform this job in the nude. What kind of sicko wants a stenographer naked? It's very strange. Very Very strange. Uh, Not knowing what to do, she told her local reverend, who in turn 
contacted law enforcement. And in a true to catch a predator style scenario, they posed as the girl and responded again, asking Kelly for more information. This is like where they got the idea for to catch a predator. Isn't that guy's name like Chris Hansen? Yeah. So this is like this is like old school Chris Hansen. <coughs> which, it by the way, is. I love that show. I do too. A pe- there's like this new guy on like Vice who does it. Oh no, it's not, it's not as good as Chris Hansen. No, it's like kind of like because there's like no police who like chases them. And it's, That's it's weird. Right. Okay. So apparently his response was so vile that the police arrested him for sending explicit material through the mail. Wow, it's like the first, like the yeah. the first like um, porno. <laughs> it's like the first unwanted like yeah, deep pic. Oh god. Um, when <laughs> I'm sure if he could, he would have sent a picture of himself. When police arrived at the house to arrest him, he interestingly enough said, "Don't take me back to Iowa." And upon his arrest, police found out that he was detained previously for being a peeping tom. Apparently, he was looking into the window of a married woman. Which, really quickly, kind of goes into that whole laying in the thing of hay in the barn, looking out this peephole. Right. Just saying. Oh, that's true. Looking at this history, the police think that maybe Kelly saw the girls during the play at Children's Day, and he had his sights set on Lena Stillinger, especially because of the way her body was found. Kelly is going to give a bizarre confession to the crime. So Kelly does confess to this mur- these murders, and his confession is as follows. Kelly states that he was staying with the Reverend Ewing and went to bed at around 11 or 11.30. He said that he then felt restless and heard a weird sound like a windmill outside of his window. He then opened his balcony door and went outside. He couldn't find the source of the noise anywhere. He could not sleep, so he decided to go for a walk to the Presbyterian Church to work on a sermon. He said that he was working on an Old Testament text, which was Ezekiel 9. And within the text, it states, to slay utterly. He said it was then that a voice told him that he himself needs to slay utterly. So he walked past the church. He said he then saw a long shadow, and he knew that he was the hunter of that shadow and he had to follow it. The shadow led him to the Moore house. He followed the shadow around the house and found the axe. The voice told him to slay utterly. He entered the house and climbed the stairs, which he said felt like Jacob's ladder to him. He then killed Joe and Sarah Moore because the voice told him again to slay utterly. He then went into the room of the children. He said it was then that the voice said to him, Suffer the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He then told the voice that the children were on their way, and he murdered them. He said that at that point, he was very tired and he wanted to stop. But once he searched the house one more time, he found the Sillinger girls, and the voice told him that he must slay utterly. This confession, however, was thrown out before Kelly's trial even began because it was illegally obtained and it's, it really didn't coincide with the murders as much as 
he thought they did. I mean, it seems to us that they do. I mean, it is talking about the killing of the family, but he leaves out some important facts like at the house, there was a plate of uneaten food found and a bowl of bloody water. Where did that come from? Um, there was also the slab of bacon that was found. He didn't mention that at all. Like There were certain things that he left out that it was pretty obvious that he wasn't the killer. He didn't talk about covering the mirrors or covering the bodies. That's true. I mean, you're right. Those are really important facts. Right. Facts. So the prosecutor only charged him with the death of Lena Stillinger. His first trial was a hung jury, but during his second trial, he was acquitted. They wanted to only charge him with the death of Lena Stillinger because they thought that if he was, in fact, the killer, that his main target was Lena because of the way her body was positioned. And because of all of his prior perversions, that it would be easy to say, okay, this man was infatuated with this girl, he went to meet her, and then that's how the murders took place. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that re- there's actually a recent movie on Netflix that actually sticks to that theory of the case, that it is the preacher that... Well, sorry. Oh, oops. Sorry. Oh, oh how about, no. Hey, hey, K, how about a spoiler alert oh, first? I'm sorry, guys. It's really not that good of a movie, so it's okay. <laughs> I feel so bad now. <laughs> um, there's a lot of theories in this unsolved case because of all the suspects, but I think before we go through the list of theories and suspects that we should kind of talk about some unanswered questions because discussing the unanswered questions could lead to who the killer is and what their mindset could have been so let's first go with the questions so what kind of person could have committed this crime first thing we could talk about is the physical attributes well first off you would have to be this is my personal opinion you would have to be tall only because even if you swing up an axe... Well, don't forget that this house was built in the early 1900s. So, the ceilings are very low. The ceilings are lower than our low ceilings are today. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Well... And it's a long-handled axe. Okay. Well, I mean, still. You still have to be physically you still, you fit. You have to be physically fit to, 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 to wield it. You know, repetitive, you know, strikes over and over and over again. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's. I mean, you you either have to be physically fit to do this or you have to be in a frenzied state. But if you think about it, 20 to 30 hits to each person and eight people were murdered. That's a lot. It's overkill. It's... it's the Like, these people, it wouldn't have taken more than just one strike. But right. wh- whoever did it just wanted to make sure, to ease his mind, I guess, you can call it that, that everybody in that house was, was definitely dead. dead. Right. Yeah, it doesn't um, It doesn't seem like the person who committed this crime, even though the transient thing kind of sounds like the most, makes the most sense, or like just this random killer, it seems like there was an aggression in the kills. And we can't make the argument that they were trying to steal anything because nothing was missing in the house. And these people were slaughtered. It wasn't just a quick, oh, I'm going to kill them as fast as possible so that now I can loot the house. Someone carefully made sure all of the curtains were shut in the house. And the windows that didn't have curtains, they put clothes over. They put clothes over the glass and the mirrors. And someone took their time with this whole scenario. I mean, it was it was definitely, uh, you know, 
stuff. They had an agenda. Yeah, and it was it was executed very properly. Like it took planning for most of these things to go down. Right. You know what I mean? For him to or, or, or it could have just been this frenzied state that it just but I don't think it is a frenzied state actually because they took the time to hang everything and make that plate of food. Yeah. But what's going on with that slab of bacon? I don't know what's going on with that bacon. Like I said before, maybe they got hungry. But anyway, so it would take someone with a lot of physical strength. It would also, let me ask you this. If you were to t- uh, wield that axe, could you repeatedly, you? Okay. I don't think right. that I could physically hit eight people, even just, okay, eight volleyballs in a bed 20 to 30 times each, like. That it's a lot. It's physically exerting. It is. So what I'm trying to get at is, so you have to be physically fit to wheel this. Number one. Yes, and number, the and the hits two, were deep. Right. That's what I'm saying. So and number two is, you have to have some sort of knowledge. I know that sounds really dumb, but you would be really shocked of how hard it is to actually wield a a long handled axe. I can tell you from personal experience, it's not easy. You know, it's part of my living. At one point, that's all I did was sledgehammers and axes. And I'm telling you, it's hard, really hard, and you need to know how to use that motion in order to get an accurate, strong swing. Right. So you need to be physically strong, and you need to know how to use it. Okay. Well, another thing that people think of is maybe it was more than one person, maybe it was a few people, but when McClowry examined the scene and looked at everything. It seems like the swings were made by the same person. A lefty. Someone that was left-handed, correct. But you know what? You know what makes me think that that doesn't matter? What? Is because when I'm out in the field working, personally myself, you know, at work, even though I'm dominantly right-handed, I would shovel sometimes left-handed. Well, no. I mean, I think they mean like the 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 way naturally the body goes because someone's left-handed or right-handed. Like what hand goes on top or on bottom of the axe handle. That's what they're saying from the way that the upswing hit the ceiling. Well, either way, you never know. Maybe he had two lefties in there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I I guess you're right. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, it's off the deep end there, but hey, maybe there was two lefties. So, we're saying that this person has to be physically fit. Um, Oh, yeah. I mean, and that, if you look at Reverend Kelly, he was 119 pounds, 5'2". I don't know if physically he would be able to do... I know what you're saying about the height, though, because to be standing above the family, like above the beds, and to be wielding the axe right, down... Like how tall was he? You said he was 5'2"? He was 5'2", yeah. Okay, so you're a little taller than 5'2". I'm 5'3", yeah. Okay, so could you imagine at the height of our bed, for example, I'm laying in it, and you ha- are... At my bedside, I think it would be very hard would, for me to bring an axe down. You know, it, it, like it would that. be hard to bring the axe well, down in the trajectory of like and hitting also the a power, like and how deep these, you know, wounds were. Like you would need a lot of force behind your swing, you know, because right already at the at, mm-hmm. at the start you're already at a height disadvantage. Right. So that's why I'm saying I'm not saying and maybe the height it's someone matters. a little bit taller. Right. I mean, the height could and actually, a little more physically fit. Right, because the height, I mean, the height could be from hitting, you know, it helps with your theory of it hitting the ceiling. Yeah. But you're, I mean, if it's a short person, you're at a disadvantage already. Right. And that just goes to, like, the aggression. 
that your upswing is even so powerful that it's hitting the ceiling. It's making nicks in the ceiling, big gouges in the ceiling. Um, another question is that, do you think there was a specific target? Do you think that Lita Stillinger was... No, I don't. I no. think that they were all of vic- they were all victims of just a crazy fuck. Yeah. Because I think she's the only one who woke up. I think she is the yes, I think she's the only one that woke up based on her position of her body compared to everyone else. So you think she woke up kind of was trying to get away and that's why she's a little bit down further on the bed? Like you don't think the killer I, positioned I th- her? You know what I think actually? And I don't mean to make a joke of the bacon again, but I'm just trying to say how she's different than everybody else. Well, just the whole bacon thing is so bizarre. But what I'm trying to say is it's possible that there must have been some maybe like, well, sexual intentions and she wasn't struck right away the, the way everyone else was. Maybe... You know, he tried to touch her Maybe or do something and she woke up. And that's where you have these defensive protect like her defensive wounds from first. Right, like okay, so I see what you're saying. She wasn't wearing underwear. So possibly what and the underwear was found on the floor. So and it seemed like she had disrobed and like took the underwear off and just put her nightgown on. So Possibly the killer saw her, and she did have a blood mark on her inner right knee. So possibly he was lifting her one leg to look, and she woke up. I'm just saying, I don't know how, or, you know, how. obviously I don't know how it went down, but that is the only thing that I can think of what makes her different specifically right, to the rest of the house. Right, because she woke up. Though right. This person must have been so stealth going through this house right. that... I just think it's so bizarre. It's kind of like the DeFeo case in Amityville. How do you kill someone? Like, if someone's being murdered right next to me with an axe, I would wake up. The four children were in the same bedroom. How did someone not wake up? Well, the only thing... Once again, it's crazy. And I hate when I do this, but it's just... This is how my head works. There was no indication, because they didn't do a real good autopsy, right? I mean, they really didn't do much. Yeah. Is it possible that maybe, even though they were killed with the axe, is it possible that maybe they were suffocated via pillow? Like, I'm just trying to think, like... But you would still hear that, too. Well, you wouldn't really hear... I mean, mean, you'd hear someone struggle, because you'd wake up after you can't breathe. You'll just die peacefully. Right. It's kind of odd. It is odd. odd. You know, another thing that I was thinking, is it possible that they were drugged somehow through food or Maybe water? Maybe the milk or cookies or that cookies they had or before something bed? was drugged and they all were knocked out? And that and that gave him an easy way in. Like I don't mean to make a joke. I was you know, saying, maybe but maybe were, he was used... in the attic. Maybe he right. really was in the attic. Like, what if they use like roofies? They were all knocked out. But how would he know they would have the milk and cookies before bed? I don't know. I can't really come up with that. I know. But I'm just saying that would be a way that you would have everyone knocked out and they wouldn't even know what was going on. No, I, I get what you're saying. And he was able to just go around and just, oh, let's just keep hacking this guy, these people. No, I know. get what you're saying and I completely agree. I think that would really explain a lot. But how would he know what they were going to – like it just – there's too many what ifs. Like I don't know if that's a possibility. 
No, it's not. But it is food for thought, and I like for our audience to hear everything. I know. Because maybe they're thinking about something that we just are not even close to, but these little tidbits that we're putting out, they can That's put true. together That's true. And if you guys picture. ever are thinking something, please reach out to us, Instagram, Twitter, or our website, truecrimecouple.com, or tell us how stupid our theories are. Whatever you want to do, that would be great. Um, another... Okay, so let's go back to Lena's position. So you think that she woke up and that's what led to that positioning. Yes. I do think that there is a strong possibility because of the bloodstain on her right knee that the killer was being a super creep and was trying to look at the girl because she had no underwear on. And then that made her wake up. And then that's that's why the struggle ensued with Lena. Plus, didn't you say that the parents were killed first? The parents were, they can't determine who was killed first, but it seems like because of the, because of the passage through the house that you have to go from the parents' house to get to the children's room. I mean, the parents' room to get to the children's room. So like, and it makes sense with any killer who was that you got to take out your biggest threat first. So that's why it's insinuated that the parents were killed first. Okay. Then the Stillinger girls were killed last. They know that because that's where the axe is found. And it seems like the killer didn't know that they were there. Which is another theory that makes me think Lita is not the target because the killer didn't know the girls were there. Right. They only found them because they searched the house. I was just going to say that what also could have led to the uh, other victim being positioned the way she was... Think about this. This person's doing this, exerting all this energy, going through all these rooms and killing all these people. It's, it could just ha- be that by the time he got to Lena, he was exhausted. Exhaust. He took a break real quickly, yeah. and she felt the presence, woke up, and was right. like, "Who? you know, what the fuck? Oh, my I'm God. I'm still so, blown away by the fact that... No one heard anything. They didn't wake up. Yeah, I know. How, so am I. I don't understand. So am I, but I but think But I that, guess if in the DeFeo case, a shotgun blast can go off and you don't wake up we can get away with this because it's a little bit quieter than a shotgun i guess so you know yeah um so the next question is why did the killer cover the mirrors and an interesting thing just to say first before we get into the questioning is it was popular belief at the time that mirrors were very superstitious things that spirits could be seen through mirrors there was a lot of popular games that were being played at the time by children uh, for example, if a girl asked uh, to see what her husband looked like and she looked into the mirror, she was supposed to see a picture of her future husband. Or if she saw a skull, it meant she was going to die before she got married. Or the whole Bloody Mary thing. I mean, mirrors were supposed to be a window into the spirit world. So maybe the theory is that he covered the mirrors because he was scared that his victims were going to look back at him. Or it could be that he covered the mirrors because he couldn't face looking at himself after everything that he committed. Right, maybe he was ashamed of himself. Yeah. And, and that could lead to him being a religious man. It could be. It, it, it absolutely could be. Or it, But it could be anybody. It doesn't necessarily have to be that he was a religious man. It could, have been, it could be anybody that, you know, maybe like they... You know, maybe they know that they can physically commit these crimes. But they, they can't know, face themselves. But they can't face themselves, right. Now, I so, think, like, it's an internal struggle. Right. I think that leads to the fact that this is not a murder for hire. Because 
obviously you could face the fact that you killed people because you're doing it all the time you're doing it for money that's true uh, it's really hard to say now let's just break down the different suspects and see if like what we talked about through those questionings we could figure it out so reverend kelly i think he's just like a deeply disturbed guy i don't think i think he's a pervert but i don't think that he committed those murders he likes stenographers naked. That's his thing. Yeah. You know? He's a peeping Tom. He's a creep. But by all accounts, the women that he did this with were, I mean, that girl was in high school, but he didn't know who was going to respond to him. But it seems like he's interested in older women. doesn't seem like he's interested in children. And if you are interested in a younger girl, like they're trying to say that Reverend Kelly was, would you really slaughter eight people to just look at her? She wasn't sexually molested. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't I, think I really so. I think th- I think there would have been an easier way for him to try and groom a victim of a young child, if that's what he was into, than killing eight people. I mean, I think he's a creep. I just don't think that's his M.O. I don't believe yeah. it is. Um, then there is the theory of F.F. F. Jones and William Mansfield. I think it's a possibility that Jones definitely wanted more killed would he have killed the whole family well you have to look at it from this perspective i don't think of course you don't i mean you don't kill anybody but if this guy really had a vendetta towards you know the the father i mean you think about this if the father dies it's left to his children and then the cycle just kind of keeps going you know like the the business stays family business yeah but his youngest son's 11 years old i I mean his oldest son's 11 I don't know. I think that if it were a murder for hire, it could have happened a lot more easily. That it would have just been like Joe Moore on his way home got murdered. But this is the thing. The whole family. At the end of the day. Yeah, the guy lost a lot of money. Yeah, you know, he lost clients and all this stuff. And then the embarrassment of his son. But you know what, though? He had his own company. He was... He wasn't doing bad financially. And he was running for Senate. I don't know if he would... He wouldn't. Yeah. It just doesn't seem right. Plausible. You would risk everything just for that. I think so much information is out about it because I think Wilkerson was so focused on proving that it was F.F. Jones in Mansfield. And that's, I think information's clouded about it. What do you think about Henry Lee Moore, the serial killer? You know, to me, it fits the bill. Because even though it's like, okay, this is the easiest one because he was convicted of all the other murders, but I do think that it fits the bill. It fits my physical bill where he Correct. he definitely has the physicality to do it. Two, he worked on railroad tracks. He was he, he was a transient. Yeah. He was, in, he was allowed to be in and out of towns, leave, go away. It's very inconspicuous. He had this aggression. He did it to other families the same way during the same time period. And like I said, it it fits. Everything fits. So for me, I think that's who it is. Even though it's the easiest one, it's not a cool story. It's not like this, you know. It is still a crazy story because this one guy killed eight people without anyone waking up. And like, it's just insane. I don't understand how I mean, it I'm just happen. saying that, yes, it's I know it's what you crazy. mean. It's not this dramatization Right, which I know a lot of people look up. for. Yeah. But I mean, for this, I think that he fits, he fits my bill. Right. So, I think that, I think the idea of a transient from the railroad 
because this town is built around the railroad and they have 200 stops a day is the most likely thing that could have happened, just someone who was out of their mind. But the fact that Moore had done it so many times, I think just makes it the most plausible thing that could have happened. Okay, so before we leave this case, we just want to let you know that the Velisca Axe Murder House, as it's come to be known, has been completely renovated to what it looks like in 1912. And it is open for daily tours, and you can even book an overnight stay. And this is something that has become extremely popular. For $428 a night, you could be in the house with up to six people overnight. If you want more than six people, you just have to pay an additional $75. No, thanks. I'm not going. (laughs) Well... Many people want to stay in the house overnight because of all the reported paranormal activity that takes place in the house. The site has been the focus of many paranormal investigation TV shows, including our favorite, Zach Baggins. Zach Baggins, we love him. yeah. Um, <laughs> there's even, of course, because of the new movie that was out on Netflix, a lot of people are into this case recently. People's interests are peaked. I even checked the availability, and they're basically all booked for august and like for six months after it like they're just completely booked so people want to go that's great for uh velisca (laughs) it's really great so um what we want to do is just play for you really quick an evp that was captured at the house by some paranormal investigators first it's going to play the clip normally and then it's going to slow it down in the loop okay well tell me it's possible anyway Okay, so if you listen really closely, the voice is supposed to say, get in here. And there's one more. Now, if you listen really closely... The voice of a child in the background is saying, he's going to hurt us. And then the other one is saying, Paul, which is the name of one of the more children. It'll loop it slow for us now. Okay, so that was your daily dose of creepy. Sorry if that scared anybody. But something that is going to also attract people to the house is the fact that in 2014, one of those amateur paranormal investigators is actually going to stab himself almost to death in the room of Sarah and Joe Moore. He almost dies, but he survives, but he has to be uh, helicoptered to a hospital in Nebraska. And it's not clear why he did this to himself, but he did it right around the times the murders took place at 12.15. That's pretty creepy. Very creepy. Yeah. Okay, so thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're True Crime Couple, and the same with Instagram. If you're interested in donating to our Patreon, which we would appreciate so much, every dollar helps, uh, you can see that at patreon.com slash couple. 
We really want to hear your feedback, so keep those iTunes reviews coming. They're amazing. We love to hear from you guys. Thanks, guys. All right, have a good night.